0: As promised, folks, uh, we have a fantastic guest uh, joining us here, and um, his name is Gregory May, okay? And um, Mr. May, he's an internationally known tax expert, uh, writes a lot about tax and tax policy, a former Supreme Court law clerk. Uh, He's practiced in D.C., and in New York, uh, over 30 years, I think, and uh, hey, he has a local uh, Virginia connection. He is a graduate of the very beautiful and historic College of William and Mary, and uh, and also of Harvard, but we're going to forgive him for that. (laughs) Welcome to the program, sir. Thank
1: you. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, and uh hey and thank you for writing this book, the most famous founding father you've never heard of. And you know, and I try to stay up on these things and uh I had not heard of uh Gallatin or oh, is it Gayatin? Is it Gallatin?
1: Yeah, Gallatin, Albert Gallatin. Yeah. And the name the name of the book is Jefferson's treasure.
0: Yeah, yeah. His treasure, not his treasurer, his treasure.
1: <laughs> uh, it's it, it's about it's about not only the man but the money
0: yeah yeah and you know and we've all heard of uh george washington's um secretary of the treasury uh alexander hamilton and uh but here we have uh thomas jefferson's secretary of the treasury and uh and now we know that they these were like opposing political parties i don't know if they were uh, quite as vociferous or quite as defined and delineated then as they are now, I know they were vociferous, but as far as on issues were um you know Republicans or and Whigs uh as clearly defined from Democrats then as they are now and and were the various issues on the two sides? Uh, Did they kind of correlate to where we are now, uh, big government versus small government? Or at least they say small government.
1: Well, they were very delineated by the time Jefferson got into office. Uh, But it's hard to draw direct connections between the issues then and the parties then and the issues now and the parties now. The two parties opposing each other at that time were the Federalists the party of George Washington and John Adams and the Republicans, the party of Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe, which then eventually began to call itself the democratic party, uh, by the age of Andrew Jackson. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it's difficult to draw direct connections between either of those groups and mm-hmm. our current parties, although people try to do that all the time. Yeah, but yeah. The, the political issues at the time were, not surprisingly, uh, very much about money and about how powerful the central government was supposed to be. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and Hamilton wanted a strong federal government Um And then, of course, Jefferson wanted the states to remain stronger, uh, if I understand my American history correctly.
1: That's right. Uh, uh, Jefferson and his party thought that democracy depended upon keeping government close to the people. Mm -hmm. And in those days, when communications were very different, the country was very different, uh, a central government, they thought, would quickly come under the control of an elite. And it was actually that fight over elite control that directly connected to the central issue that gave rise to the parties. Mm-hmm. And that was the fight over how to finance and pay for the national debt.
0: Right. Well, obviously, at the birth of the nation, you there had to be a surge of uh, federal power. It, it's, I guess the question is, how do you have a surge and how do you have an off switch you know, or or run the risk of creating a Frankenstein uh, over which you you lose control.
1: That's right. And from the point of view of the Jeffersonian Republicans, the the question was really the preservation of of popular rule Mm -hmm. because they thought that a central government that had a lot of power and had a lot of centralized financial resources would quickly come under the control of a small elite group of people.
0: But doesn't that happen uh, regularly anyway? I mean, for years I've been talking about how every four generations we go to war. And one of the things that happens in these gates in history from the revolution to uh, four generations later, Lincoln and the Civil War, four generations later, you know, FDR and, and, and world war two. And right now, same thing, Donald Trump, here we are four generations later, it seems there's this fight. Uh, it's like a a system gets created. And after four generations, it's, uh, you know, there's nowhere for it to go. And so it seems like it has to be, uh, either destroyed or pruned or, you know, something has to happen so it can kind of have a rebirth. Um, is 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 that what we're seeing now could that be the connection between uh what Trump is trying to do um, what he calls the swamp and and what uh Gallatin and Jefferson were trying to do uh with uh what Hamilton had created
1: well our, our federal government is not our forefathers federal government and the circumstances now are radically different from those that that Gallatin and Jefferson confronted when they came into office you know, over 200 years ago, um, their, their problem when they came into office was how to pay down a $90 million debt that they had inherited from the revolution and the, the Federalist administrations that preceded them. And they thought it was critical to pay that debt down because a nation deeply in debt was not really free. Mm -hmm. It was always going to be beholden in one way or another to its creditors, to the people who were in owning the money or providing the additional money necessary to keep that scheme running. Mm -hmm. And it it was that democratic instinct more Mm -hmm. than anything else that drove them to be fiscally responsible. And they set in place a culture of fiscal responsibility that really lasted in this country until the early or mid-20th century. Mm -hmm. Gallatin's statue is in front of the Treasury, right beside the White House, put there in the 1920s, because he was very much remembered at that time Mm -hmm. as the founder of our fiscal culture.
0: Well, who could argue with that, though? That seems like So much common sense. And uh, and maybe that's because I'm a I'm a very, very conservative person. And uh, and today I say the same thing. It's like, okay, how can these modern Democrats argue when you make a case for fiscal responsibility? It just seems like what uh, a family does at the kitchen table. It, It seems literally like common sense. So who who was arguing with this back then?
1: Well, back then, uh, the the argument with it came from people who thought that we needed a stronger military establishment in order to establish what was then a fledgling little country on the border of the Atlantic Ocean as a, a power that had to be reckoned with in the Atlantic world to protect ourselves from the great powers of the day, which were Great Britain and France. Mm. So those were the people who were arguing against it at the time. Of course, since then, there are always people arguing for ways to spend the government's money. And Gallatin, in fact, in a a wonderful letter to the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, pointed out that that was always going to be the problem of democracy because people could see the benefit of spending money now Mm -hmm. that they didn't have to pay for until later or that they would never have to pay for because it would just be rolled ahead into an ever-growing national indebtedness.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it was Jefferson that said that uh intergenerational debt is like stealing uh from another generation that is actually immoral.
1: Yeah, he he and some others uh said that actually there were some other members of the Republican Party from Virginia and North Carolina who said it even even more lyrically and emphatically than Jefferson himself did. And interestingly, uh, that that was an idea that uh, J- Jefferson and some of the others had borrowed from the French revolutionaries, who were looking for an excuse not to pay the debt they found uh, that the loyal government had run up before the French Revolution.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Wow. And so now you have you have these people that um, are these towering figures, uh, Gallatin, whom you write about. Hamilton, whom we, we we know about, and their leadership style, uh, you know, what was it about them and and what caused the clash? And do you see people today uh, on style and policy that we can uh, look at and identify and, and kind of see a pattern?
1: Well, of course, the personality types always repeat themselves, in in one way or another, even as times change, but Gallatin and Hamilton couldn't have been more different as personalities. Gallatin was an immigrant from a small city state, independent at the time, called Geneva, now part of of course of the country of Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he came here as a as a teenager with no money. He had a French accent for his whole life and. He he was always derided by his political opponents for being a foreigner and for being a tax rebel because he actually had come to attention uh, through the armed rebellion that his neighbors in western Pennsylvania mounted against Hamilton's excise tax on whiskey. We remember Mm, The Whiskey whiskey Rebellion. Yeah,
0: yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah, that's why I— Go ahead. Hamilton, on the other hand, was, uh, was an elitist a centralizer. Uh, I mean, the Broadway musical cast him as an immigrant, but he was really a migrant within the British empire. And he, he might have been derided by his enemies for being poor and illegitimate, but he very quickly married into one of the most powerful families in New York and he became an insider. His whole power Uh, depended uh. upon his friendship with Washington and and his inside connections. And
0: and that's so interesting because today you have elitists who and basically they will pimp their brown skin or, you know, I'm, you know, my grandfather came from so-and-so or, you know, I'm black, I'm Hispanic, I'm female. And they're powerful insiders, but, you know, they present themselves before the nation as a victim because they belong to some group that people are able to convince um, the uninformed that these are people that are are marginalized and it just, it just seems that, you know, and this is, so this is like a lesson for today uh, for people that are looking for ways to, to fight that false uh, argument that, that people make.
1: Well, certainly the, the um, notion that Hamilton was um, some sort of an immigrant success story uh, is a, profound confusion of our historical understanding of his, of his role and the way he was understood throughout the 19th century. Indeed, he, he has become sort of a respectable historical figure uh, only in the 20th century as the federal government has become the kind of consolidated, powerful system that he envisioned.
0: Mm hmm. Let's talk about economic warfare a little bit. I was um, talking about this a little bit in the previous hour uh, before in talking about it in anticipation, in anticipation of having you come on and, and you as the expert. <laughs> OK. Um, but um, we have uh, Cloward Piven, the Cloward Piven strategy, uh, Frances Fox Piven and her late husband, Richard Cloward, Uh They wrote a a paper famously uh, back in 1966 uh, basically saying you could literally destroy the United States uh, of America's uh, idea of freedom and replace it with uh, communism by overwhelming the federal government with more financial demands than it could possibly meet and it would all come crashing down. And hasn't economic warfare been a tool that nations use against uh, other nations? For example, uh, I think Reagan used economic warfare against the Soviet Union via driving down oil prices.
1: Well, yes, economic warfare has been important throughout history. Indeed, it it was very important um, in our founding era because— Uh, Great Britain and France were at war throughout much of the 18th century. And then when Napoleon became emperor of of France at war throughout the early 19th century until Waterloo. And um, they tried to uh, fight each other by putting restrictions on trade, which profoundly affected the United States since it was a neutral trader. That was trying to export foodstuffs and other basic raw materials to Great Britain. And it was, it was the British and French interference with American trade that more than anything else affected, uh, the, the, the uh, amount of fervor and dissonance in American politics throughout that period and ultimately led us into war with Britain in 1812. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- you know that that's uh, an example of economic warfare that profoundly affected the formation of American political parties, our our financial policy, and how we ultimately decided to build up our military after the War of eighteen twelve. Mm-hmm. Now those, in, those internally, issues, course, you say, continue.
0: Now internally, this cloud pivot strategy to to use economic warfare inside the nation uh you know and it seems that in in a modern sense the democrats want to spin like there's no tomorrow and republicans give lip service to it and basically they will take their foot off the gas a little bit and rather than drive over the fiscal cliff which is definitely looming out there we're like the the largest uh debtor nation in the history of humanity um and 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 the republicans seem to just want to drive towards the cliff at 25 miles an hour but they never ever want to put it in reverse it's like they 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 don't have the nerve to go to the american people and make the case of why we must put this thing in reverse you have to say no to some of these things you know am i describing this accurately
1: well i, I think overspending is is a A sort of systemic problem built into democracies for the the reason I mentioned before. And voters can always see a benefit from current spending Mm -hmm. that they don't immediately have to pay for. So to make democracies fiscally responsible, politicians have to have the sense of responsibility and the nerve to keep spending and taxes in some sort of relationship. And in the last 25 years, 30 years, we in this country have completely lost that discipline in both parties. Mm -hmm. Indeed, some of the biggest unfunded entitlement spending commitments were made under uh, the second Bush administration.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So it. it,
0: Yeah. Expanding. um, Yeah. The 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 uh, the the drug, you know, the. the drug deal.
1: Exactly. That was, that was the biggest unfunded entitlement program that's ever been enacted in, in this country. Mm-hmm. So th- there's plenty of responsibility to go around. Mm-hmm. What we have is, is, is a systemic problem that we managed relatively successfully for most of our national history. But in the last 30 years or so, we've dropped the ranks. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, are there a cohort of people that, again, going back to Cloward and Piven, you know, you hear a lot about George Soros and how he's bankrupted other nations. You know, I I don't have the expertise to unwind, you know, the types of things that he's been accused of doing. Uh, But are there people that want to see? a financial collapse in America and are, are pushing policies, you know, not the, you know, the average person, I think maybe the average politician is just sensitive to to voters. And, uh, you know, like Bush trying to make sure he got reelected. So basically he's purchasing the votes of the elders uh, who so many of them moved to Florida because he, I, I got to win Florida. Um, but are are there people that really have deep knowledge and and have a long range vision, and just going to sit and patiently wait. Uh, and and will their waiting be rewarded if we don't put this thing in reverse?
1: Well, I guess I don't find it easy to relate to conspiracy theories, uh, and, and I, I don't really think that uh, that kind of an internal destructive approach is is going to benefit anybody. But in the international setting, it's clearly true that countries have an interest in making sure that they're economically strong, because as we saw at the end of the Cold War and as we've seen in the World Wars in this century and in major conflicts throughout the 19th century. Indeed, in, in the American Civil War, if we want to look for an example in our country, mm-hmm. it's it's usually the side that has the healthiest economy that has the best chance of winning a yes. major military conflict.
0: Yeah, so true. So true. You know, if you can't buy the arrows, if you can't buy the steel, <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's hard to win a war. Yeah. So and uh, but anyway, it, it's, it's been great uh, having you on, sir. And uh, again, out there, folks. This is Gregory May. Uh, the book is Jefferson's Treasure: How Albert Gallatin Saved the New Nation from Debt, and uh, a good book. And uh, you, you, you have um, anything else you want to share with the audience? How folks can uh, get your book? How they connect with can connect with you, or maybe you have a new book coming out soon.
1: Well, th- this book is available wh- wherever books are sold. Um, it's it's online, it's in bookstores, and if uh, people would like to connect with me, I have a, a website, GregoryMayAuthor.com.
0: GregoryMayAuthor.com. Great, great. All right. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you, too. Bye now.
1: Bye.